our series, Why Believe. How many of you, when you drove in, you noticed a bunch of groceries sitting out behind cars? Uh, that's our, our bumper crop thing. We do that at least once a year where we stock our, our food pantry to help people in our community. I think, I know they gave away over 600 uh, grocery bags, those big white bags full of food uh, to people in our community this last year, and, and that just is an ongoing thing that uh, we do to, to try to help people that are in need. So thank you if you participated. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, we also had the opportunity to help some people in third world countries, um, northern Thailand, uh, as far as getting children um, who are orphaned uh, papers so they can get on the road to Thai citizenship so they're not just second-class citizens and all those things. That's something that's just happened. We, we were able to do that financially here in the last week. For They're not our orphans. We've already done that for ours, but some another group of orf, orphans that are in uh, refugee status uh, by the Burma border. So another thing that we've accomplished recently, just, yeah, you can clap for that too. That's, that's great. And that's the kind of stuff that just really happens continuously uh, around grace. So when you're giving to grace, that's, those are some of the things that, that we're trying to do. But uh, I want to tell you a little bit about Tiffin. Of course, we had a, a big day last Sunday, and I, I don't want to go into detail or anything, but Tiffin uh, was great, great uh, first public Sunday. We had 985 people there and uh, just kind of blew the doors off the place. And that was in two services. In the second service, we had people standing. So uh, we're trying to work on that, but uh, great, great problem to have. And we'll see how things go for the rest of this month as we kind of focus on that. Well, we're, we exist in all three of our locations to help people discover truth and decide on Jesus. And we know for a lot of people, before they can make that decision about Christ, they have some questions that are hurdles for them that they need answered. And so we want to answer some of those questions. Some are a little more emotional or a little more heartfelt, and some of those are a little more intellectual, a little more thinking. And, and so we've dealt with with one of those, you know, we talked about how God knows you and loves you. Today, we're, we, we spend all our time preaching from the Bible, but how do we know the Bible is the Word of God? So we're going to look at that today. And here's the deal. <clears throat> I know some of you are like, oh, this will be interesting. I've not heard this before. And I know a lot of you, you're thinking, okay, I've already heard Kevin talk about this. He talks about this like every year. And so you're already getting ready to zone out. Why am I, we're talking about this for two reasons. Number one, so people who are skeptical of the Bible can have some reasons answered and have more confidence in what the Bible says. But for believers, we, we're doing this for you too. Because it's not good enough that you just know this information, that you just sit there and go, oh yeah, I remember that. Oh yeah, he said that before. Oh yeah, that makes sense. No, you need to be able to say this to other people. You need to be equipped to be able to defend Scripture to other skeptics on your own. As a matter of fact, Scripture speaks to this. In 1 Peter 3.15, it says this, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence or respect. 
So that's what we're commanded to do in Scripture, that we would be equipped to defend against people's questions about the hope that we have, that we'd be able to do things like defend Scripture. So as you're hearing this, maybe for the second time or the third time, try to internalize it so that hear it in a way that you can retain some of this so that you can help others understand. So why believe? Because we can prove that the Bible is reliable. The Bible is the most widely read book in the world. The Bible is the best-selling book in the world every year. It's not included on bestseller lists because always it would be number one. Bible, 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 Bible. It'd just always be number one. So they don't even count it with the bestseller list. It's always number one. And so it's crazy that we have a book like this and the average American may, you know, there's a Bible in every house. A lot of Christians have maybe an average of five Bibles. That's not even counting devices that we have the Bible on. But it's also kind of amazing how little a lot of people read the Bible. But when we start saying, hey, these truths are from Scripture, well, we need to be able to, to tell a skeptic, well, why does that even matter? So that's what we're talking about today. Um, the Bible's amazing. It was written in three languages by 40 authors over 1,600 years. And in spite of all that diversity, it has one primary theme, and that is a, about God's plan to help bring us back to Him. That's really what the whole Bible is about. It's just that, God's plan to bring us back to Him. Now, if the Bible's claims about itself are false, then we can safely dismiss the Bible. But if the Bible is true, then we should give it our utmost attention because our eternity depends on the truth that's said in there. There's no other higher authority if it's true. So we need to at least get that. So here's the question that we want to answer. Is it intellectually, is it intellectually feasible to believe that the Bible could be the very word of God. And we're saying, yes, there's a plethora of evidence that would support that. So first of all, let's look at the evidence. First of all, something called an internal evidence. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I just want to cover it for you because this is really, to me, a little more geared to Christians. Internal evidence is using the Bible's claims about itself as evidence. In other words, Internal evidence is the Bible says that it's God's word. And so we, we just have to know that. Here's where I want to work out of this morning is in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. This is toward the beginning of Jesus' most famous sermon, and he has some things to say about the Bible. And it begins, like I say, in 17, and we'll look at a few verses and then we'll come back to it later. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus talking in his most famous sermon. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. By the way, law or prophets, to the people in the first century, that's the entire Old Testament is what he's talking about. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the stroke 
that the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So right away we have Jesus saying, hey, heaven and earth, all of nature will pass away before one letter or even a piece of a letter in the Old Testament, the scripture they had at the time he's speaking, all of heaven and earth will pass away before one piece of a letter in the law is not fulfilled. That's a strong statement Jesus is saying. And by the way, when he says that, he's saying it's all the Bible, the whole Bible, which, which is a motto back in our history. You know, the whole Bible, nothing but the Bible. I mean, that's, that's what we believe, and that's what Jesus is telling us about, and, and we need to just get that. Uh, when he talks about a jot or a tittle, that's the old King James, the smallest letter or even a, a stroke, a piece of a letter like the little, the little dash you put on a capital Q or the dot you put above a lowercase i. He's saying before even a piece of a letter of the law, all heaven and earth would pass away. Uh, so anyway, and it's not just, and Jesus talks about the law in many places and it's not just Jesus. Quickly, Peter and Paul, who write a lot of the rest of the New Testament besides the Gospels, they say the same thing. 2 Peter 3.16, Peter calls Paul's writings Scripture. Peter, a contemporary of Paul, when Paul's writing his letters, Peter refers to them and says, wow, some of that stuff's kind of hard to understand, as is the rest of Scripture. He's saying he's equating Paul's writings with Scripture as Paul's writing it. So they understood what was happening, that this is as weighty as what was written in the Old Testament. And then Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And uh, there's another way to translate this that that inspired literally means God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed, is what he's saying. It's from God, the very words of God. So the Bible claims for itself that it is the very words of God, all of it, every letter, as given in the original language, I mean the whole deal. Now, I get that if you're sitting here as a skeptic, that's not doing it for you because you're saying, okay, well, if I don't believe the Bible, well, if the Bible tells me it's true, well, then I, I don't believe that. I get that. That's the internal evidence. Didn't want to spend a lot of time on it. Just want to tell you it's there. This is what the Bible's saying. So now we'll go to the external evidence for the Bible. How can we prove the Bible's true without hearing it from the, without using just that the Bible says it's true because if we don't believe the Bible, that doesn't work for us. External evidence that the Bible is true. Now, there are many, many types of external evidence. We could do a whole series on the external evidence just on the Bible. But I just kind of want to recap this and go through it sort of category by category. So there's a lot of types of external evidence. One is archaeology. Archaeology, which is the science of digging in dirt 
primarily in the Middle East in this case, is collateral evidence for the Bible. One way to determine a credibility of a witness, for example, in a court of law, how do you know whether this person's, how do you know the Bible's true or not and what it's saying? Well, one way that you would check a witness is does the rest of the story collaborate what he's saying? Here, here's what I mean by that. Let's say on April, say April 23rd, I went to the Fremont Theater and I witnessed a crime in the parking lot after the movie was over. And so some months later, a guy's arrested, they have court, they call, I'm a witness, so they call me to the stand. And they say, what happened on April 25th? And I say, well, I was going to watch the movie Unplanned. And I got there and I watched the movie, but I love Whoppers and a Coke. So on my way out, I bought some Whoppers and a Coke. And so I'm walking out of the theater and then I saw the crime. Now, a good defense attorney, so I've, I've, I describe what happened in the crime, but a good defense attorney, he's going to find out, was there a 9.30 showing of Unplanned on April 25th? Or, you know, he's going to check that out. Do they sell Whoppers? at the theater, you know, coat. He's going to check out, because the rest, if some of that other stuff was not true, then my testimony regarding the event would be called into question, right? I would lose credibility. That's how archaeology serves to validate Scripture. No archaeological discovery has ever contradicted the Bible. No archaeological discovery has ever contradicted the Bible. Now, over the last 50 years, there's been three or four very uh, obscure things that have been found where people would say, oh, hey, this, this contradicts Scripture. And it, apparent, and it appeared to contradict Scripture. But in every single case later, with a little more digging, they found out, oh, more evidence. It actually doesn't contradict Scripture. And we could go over uh, a bunch of those uh, situations. But it, again, remember, for example, the writer Luke, who's a little more of a historian as he writes than the other gospel write writers. He wrote Luke and he wrote Acts. In those, just those two books... He mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands. Just in those two books, all with complete accuracy. And some of you might be thinking, well, I don't really understand the big deal about that. Because no other ancient book or ancient manuscript or religious writing has near that kind of a track record. For example, the Book of Mormon compared to the Bible. The Book of Mormon talks about a civilization, an ancient civilization that lived from 400 to 600 A.D., not that long ago, 1,400 years ago, lived from 400 to 600 A.D. in the Americas. And then in describing that civilization, names cities, rivers, mountains. There's not one shred of archaeological evidence for any mountain, any river, any city, anything. This is from Mormon 
archaeologists that are over there trying to find it to give proof for the evidence of the Book of Mormon. They can't find one shred of evidence. They talk about the lack of evidence. And then the common thing is that God mysteriously just beamed it all up because there's no shred of evidence there. We would say that damages the testimony of the book. That's all we're saying. No other ancient writing comes close to the Bible when it comes to archaeology. So I mentioned sometimes, oh, you know, Luke, Luke, by the way, he starts his book by saying, hey, hey, Theophilus, I, I came here and I'm here getting eyewitness testimony of everything that happened. And so he's one person kind of removed. He's talking to eyewitnesses. But you realize a lot of the Bible was written by the eyewitnesses. Matthew, John, Peter, James, you know, all those guys wrote. They, they were just writing about what they saw. They don't need eyewitness reports. They were there. I'll give you some example of some of those things that I say where people thought. In the Old Testament, there's a civilization called the Hittites. And they come up a few times, not, not central characters or anything, but they're just mentioned repeatedly in the Old Testament. Well, archaeologists used to say, there's no, oh, the Bible's wrong. We, we've, done, we've dug all over the Middle East. We've never found any reference to the Hittites. So even though that's a minor point, and doesn't change any teaching of the Bible. They're saying the Bible is in doubt because they seem to make up the whole Hittite thing. Until guess what happened? They found a bunch of archaeological evidence for the Hittites. Now all scholars agree the Hittites existed. Nobody doubts that anymore. But for a while, that was a major critique on Scripture. King David, for a long time, archaeologists said, we have nothing specifically mentioning any ancient sources that mention King David within a few hundred years of his life. So... We're, so we think King David is kind of a myth. It's sort of like Camelot. You know, it's King Arthur. It's a myth. It's just something for the Israel people to talk about. Until what? Until they find a, a stone tablet where an Arminian king is bragging to the fact that he subdued the southern kingdom and the house and lineage of the line of who? David. So this is a, a, an Arminian king saying, yeah, I put down the grandson of David. And so now nobody doubts that anymore. So sometimes you have stuff like that. Right now I don't know of any of those that are still lingering. But the point is you can trust Scripture. We can prove. The other thing is that we, so that's archaeology. And we could go on and on about that. I'm just trying to give you an overview. Don't zone out, all right? You with me? All right. The next thing is we can prove that the Bible is authentic to the original writings. Critics say, how many have heard this? Somebody says, well, you can't really know what the Bible says because it's been passed down and passed down and rewritten in so many different languages that when it finally gets us, there's no, we have no idea what it really said. Anybody hear an argument like that? Yeah, people say that all the time. That's what critics say. So to begin with, they're right. There are no original manuscripts of any ancient document that old, because paper and, and vellum and papyri that, papyri, that all, you know, it rots, it, it's gone. So that's the way it is with all ancient literature, uh, you know, written on parchment, it's deteriorated. But here's the interesting thing. 
any ancient literature is relying on ancient old copies to tell us what the original said. Does that make sense? All ancient literature, if we believe any ancient literature. So the question is, how does the Bible stand up to the rigors of other ancient literature? All right, so let's check that out. Um, here, so other ancient manuscripts. And what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to just compare the Bible with Caesar, Plato, Aristotle, and Homer in authenticity. So first of all, Julius Caesar. Do we have him? Are we up? Okay, yeah, Julius Caesar. He wrote the history of the Galaic Wars in fifth, around 50 years before Christ. The earliest copy we have is 900 A.D., so that's 950 years after he wrote it is the first, the earliest, the most ancient copy we have of what he wrote. Does that make sense? So from the writing of the original to our oldest copy is a span of 950 years. We have 10 copies. So, and, and everybody's good with that. Next, Plato. Plato lived 427 to 347 B.C., our earliest copy of his writings is from 900 A.D. All right, so 900 A.D., that's 1,300 years from the original writing to our earliest, oldest copy, and we have seven of those. That's Plato, to even know that he lived and what he wrote. Aristotle's work on logic, called the Organon, was written in 340 B.C., the earliest copy we have is dated 1100 A.D. That's 1,440 years from the original writing to our oldest copy. And there are 49 of those in existence. So feeling really good about Aristotle's works. And then Homer wrote the Iliad. A lot of you, how many of you read the Iliad? Sometimes that's a school assignment. Homer wrote the Iliad in about 800 B.C., and the earliest copy dates all the way back to 250 A.D. So the time between the writing and the earliest copy is about 1,050 years, like, like Caesar. So, and we have 650 manuscripts of the Iliad. And so that, that's even better. That's older, and we have a lot more of them. So how does that compare to the New Testament? By 90 A.D., by 90 AD, less than 60 years after, after the crucifixion, in, in Jesus' generation, all the New Testament was written. About 57 years after Christ lived on earth, all 27 books of the New Testament were written. We have 24,000 ancient manuscripts to back that up. But that's not all. A century earlier than any of those other manuscripts to their authors... We have 5,000 copies. So better than all those other authors, closer to their writings, we don't just have a handful or even 600, we have 5,000. Within 300 years, we have two complete manuscripts of the New Testament. Within 200 years of the writing, we have in our possession now the complete entire books of John, Luke, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude. Do you see the difference here? Within a hundred years of the original writings, 
I mean, we're getting back almost to the original writings. And we probably don't have those because people would worship them. But within a hundred years of the original writing, we have little fragments. For example, we have a fragment from John 18 that if you read it is identical to our John 18, except it's written in Greek. And so if you want to learn Greek, you can go right back to within a hundred years of when the New Testament was written and read it for yourself. There is no comparison. Nobody doubts the authorship of Aristotle or Caesar or Homer. Nobody. The New Testament, way, way, thousand times more evidence. Way more evidence. And just what people do to figure that out. So... Now transmission. Okay, well, so that's it. This kind of speaks to, hey, this didn't keep changing. We don't, we don't, when we want a new, and there's been new, in the last 50 years, there's been a lot of new translations of Scripture. We don't go by the old translation and update it. From, from about, from say 1950 on, we go back to the original, to those early manuscripts and we translate from the Greek from there, so you lose all that. How many, how many have ever played the phone game in junior high? You know the phone game? Anybody with me here? You know, I remember doing this in junior high in Pueblo, Colorado, where a teacher put us, sat us all in a, in a big circle on chairs. And then the game was she would whisper a phrase or a sentence to one student. And then that student would whisper to the next student, the next student. Everybody got this, right? And then it'd go all the way around the circle. And then we all laughed at how the message had changed, you know, through being... People apply that to Scripture. You cannot do that. We skip all the circle of people and we go back to the first one, is what I'm saying. Does that make sense? So those arguments do not hold... Plus, for anybody to say, hey, well, it's like that, you know, we never know. Part of that is you, they don't understand the job of a scribe. A scribe's job was to copy things with complete accuracy. So when they copied a letter, then they counted all the letters. They counted all the A's, all the B's. They found out what the center letter of the, the, center letter of the entire book was. And then that would have to match. They had all these checks and balances. And if something didn't match up, they tore it up and started over again. That's why it took them so long to write these things up in towers, these monks doing this. That's how they were so accurate. And then you have the Dead Sea Scrolls. So in the 40s, a shepherd finds these pots full of literature. They date back to the first century. It's not New Testament stuff, it's the Old Testament stuff that they had during the time. It dates back to the time of Jesus. And they pull that out. So now that's a spot check for us because our earliest manuscripts for the Old Testament before then were like 900. And so now all of a sudden we're, we're going back 900 more years and spot checking what we have, boom, it matches. It hadn't changed. So another evidence Who's zoning out on me? All right, we'll, we'll get, okay, we'll, we'll get off that. Okay, and then, so here's what I'm saying. The archaeological evidence for the Bible is astounding 
unparalleled with any other writing of any kind. Authenticity, that we know what the original said compared to what we have today, exceeds all other ancient documents in existence. The authenticity for the Bible is stronger than any other ancient book that we have. And then the evidence for faithful transmission is unmatched by any other document. This is the Bible. I think God had a hand in making sure all those things would be true. Then, besides all that, you have things like predictive prophecy. We could do a whole series on predictive prophecy. That's things that were written in the Old Testament that came true in the life of Jesus would be a lot of that. So, for example, there are over 200 prophecies concerning Jesus that came true in his life. Yeah, so I don't want to get bogged down in this, but so the Old Testament said Jesus would perform miracles, that he would, uh, that the Messiah would perform miracles, that he would cleanse the temple, that he would be rejected and mocked by his own people, that he would be silent before his accusers, that his hands would be pierced, that his feet would be pierced, that he would, that they would cast lots for his clothing, that he would be crucified with thieves, that he would pray for his persecutors. The Old Testament predicted that his side would be pierced and that he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. And, and I could go on and on. There's over 200 of these that were properly fulfilled in the life of Jesus. But people just don't understand what that means. People don't understand the weight of that evidence. So a mathematician named Peter Stoner took a long time to research this and then figure out the probabilities and he just used eight. Of eight of the Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one person. So he's figuring out the probability that eight of these prophecies could be fulfilled in one person's life in the time frame, 33 years, of one person's life. And here... And, and what he found was, it was 1 in 10 to the 17th power, which is 1 in a 1 with 17 zeros, 1 in that. And so we see a number like that, and that doesn't mean much to us. So then Stoner goes on to say, well, it's like covering Texas, you know, in silver dollars. A lot of you have heard that before. Pam and I, a few weeks ago, were in Texas. We were halfway through the state. We were in San Antonio. We were driving past El Paso. I put in the GPS because I wanted to get on the right road heading there. And, and so I had it on there to get to the interstate. I got to the interstate, and here's what the GPS told me. Go straight for 650 miles. <laughs> Go straight, no turns, no exits, no, no for 650 miles. That's the state of Texas. No, that's not the state of Texas. That's one sliver of one half of the state of Texas. Stoner calculates, hey, this one 17th power, you know what that is? That's covering Texas, the whole state, two feet deep in silver dollars, marking one of them with an X, tossing that in by plane, stirring the pot all over the state, blindfolding one human being and dropping him off anywhere and let him wander Texas as long as he wants and then eventually he gets one chance to stop blindfolded and pick up a silver dollar and that would be it. 
That's the kind of chances we're talking about. Texas is about six times the size of Ohio. So if you want to apply it to Ohio, just make, make the silver dollars 12 feet deep and you're good. Same thing, just a lot harder to mix. But anyway, there it is. Odds like this don't just happen. It's beyond, that's, that's not all the prophecies, that's eight of them. People don't understand the power of the evidence of predictive prophecy. I remember, some of you heard this before, but I was in a philosophy class at Colorado State. And the guy, we, we got on the Bible. And this is back before, you know, I thought I'd be in ministry or anything, but we're on the Bible, but, you know, I believe the Bible. And so I'm sitting in the middle of the back row, which is where I always sat in the back row. And then we get, and, and so then I start debating the professor. And the professor had read the whole Bible more than once. And so then he, and so I brought, so I'm arguing for that God wrote the Bible and he's saying, no, it's a work of man. And so one of the things I use is predictive prophecy. Here's what the guy says. This is an unbelieving man to a largely unbelieving class. As we're arguing back and forth and the class is doing this, he goes up to the board and he says, yeah, there's been a lot of prophecies and they've been fulfilled. He's not even arguing. And he goes up and he makes a mark on the whiteboard. He says, prophecy fulfilled, prophecy fulfilled, prophecy fulfilled, prophecy, that one's fulfilled, prophecy, that one's fulfilled. And he did this about 16 times. And then he goes, prophecy. That doesn't mean that will be fulfilled. That's his argument. And I say, I'm betting on fulfilled. And all the class says, me, you know, they're all just laughing like, yeah, odds are pretty good. Some people are just, they, they process the evidence in kind of a different way. Hey, it's our job to help them to see. And then one more evidence and I'll get off of this because some of you are zoning out. I'm losing you. Impact on the world. Just one minute. Impact on the world. The Bible has had more impact on the world than any other book. Teaching of the Bible fueled the civil rights movement. It formed the basis of separation of church and state. It elevated the status of women all over the world. It led to the development of hospitals. It inspired the founding of the world's top universities. The Bible did all that. Well, God inspired people from Scripture huge. The evidence is so strong. And these are just types that I haven't covered all the types, let alone all the examples within the types. The evidence is so strong that you cannot dismiss the Bible without sacrificing your intellectual integrity. You have to ignore evidence to blow off the Bible. And the question is, what are you going to do about it? Because the Bible has not only impacted the world, it impacts people personally. And I'll show you what, what I mean as this scripture that we're looking at in Matthew 5 continues. The Bible's truth about righteousness will change your life. Back to what Jesus said in Matthew. So we did Matthew 19, picking up in Matthew 5.20. Sorry, Matthew 5.19, now Matthew 5.20. Jesus continues. Okay, he's just talked about, hey, the whole Bible is going to be fulfilled. Bank on it. Bet the universe on it, is what he's saying. 
This is interesting. Here's the very next thing that he says in his sermon. Verse 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this would have been a blow to the people that are listening to him because most of the people back then didn't think, and, and they were probably right, that their righteousness could ever match that of the scribes and Pharisees because these guys lived their entire lives in keeping the law or the oral tradition that they put on the law as to how you keep it to where even like little bitty things like what we consider salt and sugar that they're like tithing on figuring out an exact tenth of all their grains of salt, all their grains of sugar and tithing on that. I mean, and Jesus in another place says, Oh, good that you're doing that, but you forgot the weightier matters. Yeah, that's good, but what about justice and mercy? The point is, nobody thought they could do this. And so it's crushing, blow. Our righteousness has to exceed theirs for us to be with God in heaven? What chance do I have? That's what they're thinking. And then here's the very next thing that Jesus says. So they're, they're thinking, all these people, th- this is super interesting to me. I hope it is to you. They're thinking, well, what hope do I have? I have to be more righteous than those guys? And then, and, and so they're thinking about the law. The best kind of example of the law is the Ten Commandments. Remember those? You keep God first and honor your father and mother and keep one day holy, you know, and all these things. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. You know, all that stuff. Tell the truth. They're, they're thinking, wow. And then Jesus pulls out one of the laws. And the crazy thing is, he pulls out the one that probably everybody thought they kept. Thou shalt not murder. Most of the people there listening to Jesus probably had not murdered somebody. This is not warfare. That's not murder. Murder. And so he picks out the one thing that they could all say, okay, well, that one I got. And here's what he says in verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. If they weren't already crushed, they're thinking, yeah, I, I, I can only think of one commandment I've kept. I haven't killed anybody. And then Jesus says, well, you know, when you're hating somebody and p- calling people names and dismissing people as nothing, it's the same root sin in your heart. So in principle, in your heart, you've committed that sin too. And they're going, stink. Wow. There's no hope. I've not kept any law. I can't. Then it's impossible. And Jesus continues with his sermon, giving some other examples. But what he came to teach us is that right. That's exactly right. God told us what's right and wrong, and we don't do right. 
And it is impossible for us to follow God's righteous commands. It's impossible for us to be righteous before God without Jesus. And so Jesus not only came to to teach us, to teach us about the Word and that that will stand no matter what, but He also taught us that, that we fall short of the law And that's the whole point of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It all comes down to Jesus fulfilling the law. He didn't come to abolish it, to fulfill it. Because he perfectly kept every commandment as it was written in the Old Testament. And he had no sin. He didn't do anything that was against a commandment. But yet he voluntarily offered up his life to pay for our sins penalty. And that's exactly what he did 2,000 years ago. It's the whole thrust of Scripture. And the question is, where are you on this? Have you put your faith in Christ? It just all comes down to that. You can trust the Bible. You can believe it. If you still have questions, that's fine. Get them answered. But don't just keep coming up with another question, another question, just to delay the inevitable. If you have good questions, ask them, get them answered. Christianity thrives in countries that that allows the free exchange of ideas and arguments about religion. That's where Christianity thrives. Ask your questions, get them answered, and turn to Christ. Discover truth, then decide on Jesus. Before we close, we're going to come and do one more song. I just want to give you another opportunity today. And so right now, I'd like everyone to pray. I'm not going to lead you through a prayer this time. But I'd like you to bow your heads. Christian, I'd like you to be praying that the Spirit would move in our auditorium today. And uh, for, for any of you that are not sure where you stand before God, all God's asking you to do is to respond to him, to put your faith, which means your trust, your belief in Jesus and Jesus alone, that it's only through Jesus that you have any hope of being reconciled to God. And through Jesus, you can be, you will be completely reconciled to God. And so just turn your heart to him. You can pray to him right now. You can do that without me prompting to you, but just tell him, admit your sin. Tell him that you're putting your faith in Jesus starting right now, starting today. Ask him to come into your life through the Holy Spirit, and he will. And he'll change you from the inside out. And he he will help you live a life that's less sinful and more oriented on him. Just turn to him. Do it right now. Do it right now. I'll just give you a moment. For the rest of us, let's stand together. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for these, uh, Lord, who are considering where they stand with you. We thank you for the the many last Sunday in all three campuses who uh, gave their lives to you, had people turn to you in every campus of grace. And God, we know that's all you, and we thank you for that. God, help us. Help us to follow you with our life. Thank you for your goodness. In Christ's name we pray.